I spoke to a lot of Beryl's contemporaries and people she raced against, and they had some pretty bad stories. You know, they, they would um, write to the local cycling club, ask to come along and get a letter back saying, you know, you can't come in the clubhouse. Um, women aren't allowed, but if you come and make us tea, you can come along. It wasn't like, you can't ride your bike, but if you make the tea, you can come along. The Soviet Union coaches were so interested that I'm not quite clear if they made a dedicated trip to Yorkshire to see what she did, but, but they turned up one day at her farm in, uh, in Morley to see, have a look around what like she did. Because they wondered how, how, you know, there was this, uh, how does she keep beating our riders? We actually used Beryl's original bike and then we modelled it against a modern time trial bike of today. And we, we had a rider called Jessica Rhodes-Jones, who was sort of Beryl for the day. She, she kindly even wore Beryl's old Morley kit and a wig. Beryl refusing to shake the hand of her daughter, <laughs> Denise, on the national champs podium because she didn't feel like Denise done her fair share of work in the break. <laughs> I feel like this could be me and my mom if my mom was a racer. <laughs> I know, it's an incredible story. She'd won that event 12 times already, the National Road Race, <laughs> and she was about to turn 40, she was 39. Welcome to the Romance Cycling Podcast. My name is Anthony Walsh, and six days a week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you on your journey towards health, happiness, and longevity. Now let's get into the show. It's episode 666, that sounds spooky, of the Roadman Cyclone Podcast, and today I chat with the biographer, Jeremy Wilson. Roadman, welcome back to a very spooky 666, almost haunted version of the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Today, I want to talk with Jeremy Wilson. Jeremy has just won the Sports Book of the Year Award with William Hill for his book, Beryl. In Search of Britain's Greatest Athlete, Beryl Borton. The book is absolutely fantastic. I've bought probably six or seven copies of the book. I've read it myself. I've handed them out to friends and I have a couple lying around the apartment, which if someone pops over for a cup of tea real, real soon, you may get a copy yourself. It's a really interesting read. I'll hands up say I was totally ignorant of Beryl Borton before this, but her Palmeiras is absolutely outstanding seven world championship titles, 12 national titles, and probably most impressively, a 12-hour record, which she beat even the men, and she held off the men for two years. This is an incredible story of, of equality, hard work, discipline, an underdog story, and an exceptional talent. I think after reading this book and listening to this podcast, next time someone says, who is the greatest female writer of all time? The name Beryl Borton won't be far off your lips. Let me welcome to the Roadman's Cycling Podcast, Jeremy Wilson. Jeremy, how are you? Welcome to the Roadman Podcast. I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited to chat about Beryl Burton because I'll be totally honest. We spoke on Cyclist Magazine podcast. I said it was a couple of months ago at this stage by the time this is released. I didn't know who Beryl Burton was before the podcast. And it's pretty embarrassing to admit now, having spent some time chatting to you and just realized the depth of her Palmares. But why do you think she is so relatively unknown? You're not alone, so you shouldn't feel that bad about it. <laughs> you know, because... <and>, <laughs> When I was doing the book, I would make a point if I was interviewing someone on a different topic, say for the the text I worked for the Telegraph newspaper, 
and if it was a top sports person, I was always interested to know. I'd just chuck in at the end and say, "Oh, do you do you happen to know Beryl Burton?" And the majority didn't. Some some did. Lizzie, I'll name check those that did. Lizzie Dine and Alec, the Brownlee brothers, uh, Chrissy Wellington, the the, the triathlete, um, Catherine Granger, the rower. They they knew, and it was almost like if you knew, you were really into it and really fascinated because she was so amazing. What strikes me is they're all British as well. Yeah. So I wonder if she just hasn't got that notoriety outside of Britain. I think on the continent, she was really she was really famous at the time. You know, when she rode in Belgium and in France and in the Soviet Union where women's sport was really, they were putting a lot of resources into it. Um, those countries, she was better known at her prime. Holland, I know women's cycling is really big in Netherlands now. When Beryl was at her peak in the sort of 60s and 70s, it just the back end of the 60s was when women's cycling became bigger in, in Holland. So she was a household name on the continent, Italy, massive crowds when she won the world championships in, in Milan. So she was big name on the continent at that time. And I think the explanation coming back to it is cycling's place in, in British sport was rather different in the 60s and 70s. I, I mean, I wouldn't say it was, it wasn't a nothing sport. People knew Tom Simpson and people had, a, had an idea of what was going on, but it wasn't, it wasn't anywhere near where some athletics or swimming or football is. And, and obviously, particularly post the 2012 Olympics, cycling's place in British sport is definitely had a higher profile. So I think that's one part of it. But the biggest part by a long way is just the fact that women's cycling and cycling as a whole was just so institutionally sexist, basically in the 19, pre-19, late 1950s, 1960s. I mean, there wasn't... Pre-2022, we could say. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. It still obviously has a long way to go and loads of issues. But the issues in Beryl's time were really stark. I mean, I'm not playing down issues now but there are no women's cycling in the olympics until 1984 that was 50 years behind swimming and athletics uh, no women's tour de france until 1984 uh, no women's commonwealth games in cycling no women's world championship until 1958 which was decades behind the men as well and that took a really big campaign so i think that was the biggest explanation that beryl I think with cycling even now, Olympics and Tour de France for the, for the general population tends to be where where people are measured and she just never had those opportunities. But she did have the World Championship. She was fortunate in that sense that it came along just as she was becoming really, really serious about cycling. So she did have some things, but she, she didn't have those competitions that are the traditional measure. So I think it was where women's cycling was even relative to other sports how backward it was and then also just the fact that I think cycling's place in Britain was was rather different than, than what it is now. Because I was shocked speaking of the kind of comparison between men and women. The 1967 World Championships which she won it was only a 33 mile race that day and she was on her own for something crazy like 21 mile of the 33 miles. So maybe help me to paint a little bit of a picture for listeners as to what that ecosystem of I think oppression is too strong of a word, but you know how underdeveloped the uh, female ecosystem of cycling was at the time. Yeah, it was massively. There was a woman called Eileen Gray who lived in Kingston in London. She was the real sort of uh, campaigner and she would go every year to the UCI Congress in Paris and lobby for women to be allowed in the World Championships. And they said no to her a few times in the 1950s. And then she said, OK, we'll set up our own World Championships if you won't have us. 
And that sort of threat made them, they agreed. So in 1958, they had it. But it was just a complete afterthought. Speaking to the women that competed in that, that competition, there was very much this attitude, well, well, we'll have it just to keep you happy. And Eileen Gray was actually, she was asked to be a commissaire at the World Championships that year because she was there with the British team. And they didn't even let her in the uh, post-championship reception and, and a dinner for all the officials and they wouldn't let any women into it so although women were competing they wouldn't let this official who would lobby to get women into the world championships and who was actually a commissaire at the world championships she wasn't even allowed to come to the post-championship dinner and the events at this time they would just fit it in around the men's events so if Beryl was competing say in a pursuit series she'd literally have to get to the track at eight o'clock in the morning and be there all day and just wait and hope that it would be okay when there was a break in in the men's competition okay we'll run off the the women's qualifying for the pursuit or we'll run off the quarterfinal or semi-final or final or whatever so she had to deal with quite a lot more disruption and uncertainty about when she was racing than than the men and then just in terms of what they were given the British team the first few years Beryl did it they got a hundred pounds for all the all the women who who were the team manager wanted to take all their travel, accommodation. Obviously, it's a bit hard to equate because of the differences in, in money at the time, but it was way, way less than what the men's team had. And they would even have to hand back like their tyres at the end of the World Championship back to the men's um, team manager. So they were really treated as sort of second-class citizens, both in the organisation of the World Championships and also just the equipment and logistics and where they, the priority that was given to their travel and where they stayed. You know, they were... The stories were them sort of sitting on dusty floors of a train, of a ferry, on their way to the championship, staying in quite squalid accommodation. Sometimes they'd all travel in this big sort of army car that one of the, a mechanic who basically tried to support women cycling, a guy called Tom Feargreave. His um, son, Ernie Feargreave, is still a mechanic for the British cycling team, actually. And he used to um, drive them across Europe in this sort of old car. And all the women would pack into that with the bikes on the top. And that was, it was described to me like a cattle truck by one of the women. And it was really, you know, really basic accommodation. I mean, and Be Beryl's husband, Charlie, was her sort of mechanic and everything, her and her everything to her in terms of support. But he was never given an official place with the British team, even though he'd help a lot of the other women. And he would have to literally sleep rough sometimes at World Championships, you know, under hedges, outside That's the team hotel. He'd drive his, he had a three-wheeler car, he'd drive that across Europe and would sleep. Like Del Boy. Yeah, exactly. I've got pictures of it in the, in the book, you know. So it was just completely amateur without support. But obviously, because Beryl was so exceptional, I think her athletic feats where she was actually becoming in her times better than a lot of the best men, it, it obviously changed people's perceptions of women cycling and she was winning way more medals than any of the British men at the time. So it really challenged that mindset of women cycling is not as important or they're not as fast as us. So she was hugely important in that. But if you rewind right to the start, because I often wonder how many great champions in the making never actually get started because they can't overcome those initial obstacles. My girlfriend who co-hosts a podcast with me on a Friday, we, you know, tongue in cheek call it newbie questions because she's just getting started and asks all the stupidest questions. Yeah. So she's starting to ride the bike a little but. I'm just struck chatting to her about how many invisible obstacles I didn't know there are. 
like you look at cycling kit at the moment is essentially like wearing body paint. You know, girls have a higher percentage of body confidence issue if we're looking at big data than guys do. You're also in a very male dominated environment. Like most club rides she could go out to and she'd be, you know, one, maybe two girls among 20, 30 guys. Again, very intimidating. Like that's now. How intimidating was that scene for Burl to get involved in? It's fascinating what you, what you say about your partner's experiences because I think one thing where Beryl was fortunate because I spoke to a lot of Beryl's contemporaries and people she raced against and they had some pretty bad stories. You know, they, they would um, write to the local cycling club, ask to come along and get a letter back saying, you know, you can't come in the clubhouse um, women aren't allowed, but if you come and make us tea, you can come along. It wasn't like you can't ride your bike, but if you make the tea, you can come along. I must tell Sarah that. Tell her she can come on the club run next Saturday if she makes yeah. everyone tea first. There was and there was a lady called Eileen Cropper who rode in Bradford, and she rode in the first World Championships. So she's a similar age to Beryl, and she said she was in a different club to Beryl, and she said the men they didn't like the fact that she started getting as fast as them, and they used to put stones in her saddlebag when she wasn't looking to try and. Slide. <laughs> maybe there was a bit of I don't know whether there was a bit of humor to that or not but it was a it was certainly a very difficult and different environment and the the prizes for women as well was something that made me smile when I was doing the research it would it was stuff like um in the time trials it'd be stuff like a a pair of hair curling tongs or a pouch of washing powder <laughs> that would be like the prize that the the woman rider got and when Beryl actually one of her most famous rides was when she beat the men's record for the 12 hours she was actually got less money that day than the men, male rider Mike McNamara who she beat so she actually beat the men's and women's record but because the men's and women's prize money was set it was so much lower I mean we're only talking about a pound or against three pounds from memory but even though she'd won both events that day but so that that was the that was the environment in which she was in. But where she was fortunate, although there was a lot of these stories of just outright exclusion for women in some clubs, she met her husband, Charlie, who worked in the same factory as her in, in Leeds, in a tailor's factory. And he invited her out with the Morley Cycling Club. And the Morley Cycling Club, which is uh, Morley's just outside Leeds, and he was just obviously a wonderfully progressive very working class, you know, they would go out walking, they'd go out cycling, go out through the Dales, the Peak District, they'd go in huge cycle rides. And there was quite a few women in that club, three, four women, and then more as as, as things went on. So Charlie um, Beryl's husband was just incredibly supportive of her, really proud of her when she became fast. And the rest of the club were obviously very welcoming to women. So she was fortunate in that regard. And then I think she earned their respect because she was she was so fast. So the, the environment was what it was nationally. But I think she found a pocket that was really supportive. And as you say, what might have been if she didn't have that around her? I don't know. Certainly her daughter thinks that without her, her father, and, and Beryl said it herself, actually, many times that she it wouldn't have been possible to do what she did. So I think she, you know, as much as it's right that she had that support, and you would wish everybody did, I think she, at that time, she was she was fortunate to find a, a boyfriend and then husband that was so supportive and also a, a cycling club that had that ethos towards um, welcoming everybody. Her story is an amazingly inspirational story. You know, it's a story that pushes back against societal norms at the time, the challenges 
what equality truly means, but it's also quite a tragic story that's in many ways bookended with the same health concern. It was a health concern that plagued her early life. And then I think it was her 59th birthday. She was out cycling, delivering birthday invitations, if I'm correct. And she passed away from the same heart defect. Can you speak to what that health problem was? And I know when we think about health problems like that, we focus only on the downside, but maybe also if you have an insight into the mental fortitude she gained from overcoming that early health problem. Yeah, so she she was um, really into her schoolwork, so had a bit of a sort of perfectionist kind of uh, characteristic, apparently, with her, her schoolwork and everything that she did. And she basically went to take her 11 plus, so she was 11 years old at the time, and had an attack of the nervous system. She was so keyed up, so desperate to do well, and she basically collapsed. Um, it was a life-threatening situation. She, it was a, a rheumatic fever um, something called St. Vitus dance as well as the other the other description of the illness that she had. It's it a life-threatening thing. Rushed to, rushed to hospital. She spent nine months in hospital in Leeds and then 15 months after that convalescing with nuns in Southport. So she was taken completely away from home between the ages of 11 and 13. Whoa. Very seriously ill. She was paralysed down one side of her body for a time. Um, so she's actually like wrapped in black, tightly wrapped in blankets. So it must have been, if you think about it, horrendous. And her um, her parents weren't able to see her once she was in Southport for 15 months. No, didn't see them over Christmas. And then came back when she was recovered two years later, went back to school at 13 and then left school at 15. But it was this trauma that she had seemed to have a absolutely, definitely had this huge impact on her because she felt cheated by what had happened educationally because as I say she was very studious very keen to do well at school um, and it completely ruined her education but she she sort of had this thing I was determined to make my mark in the world she didn't hadn't found cycling at this point she then found it via Charlie who she met when she was 15 in, in this factory where they both worked but the um, the rheumatic fever left a scar on her heart. So when she went back to, to Leeds after after convalescing, and then when she went to work as well, she had two, two different health checks. And both of them said she had this irregular heartbeat and that she mustn't push herself, she mustn't exert herself physically. But she just completely ignored that advice. So she was actually risking her life for the next 40, over 40 years, 40 40, between 52 and 96, she was racing, so 44 years. And she was racing the whole time and punishing herself the whole time and training hard the whole time. Her daughter actually said that she didn't know till she was an adult herself in her 30s that her mother had this um, heart condition. She just sort of, I think that was just the way of it, really. You got on with it. It was sort of stiff upper lip, Yorkshire, very put your things to one side and I'm going to do what I want to do. She didn't really tell anyone. She didn't really broadcast it to people. But she she was literally risking her life every time she pushed herself. And eventually, as you say, she suffered other heart uh, health problems. Including she had a, a cancer at, at one point and um, she had other anemia and uh, various other things. But I, I think it was the, the wear and tear on her body because, as I say, she was very extreme in her training and her competitiveness. And she, she had been told many times, even later in life, to stop racing. It was sort of, you know, okay, if you want to ride your bike, that's okay, but stop stop pushing yourself in, in these um, races. But she, she was 58 
one week, as you say, before her birthday, and she just literally died on her bike, had a heart attack while she was she was on the way to her daughter's house with invites for uh, her 59th birthday. So, and about to do a training ride as well. So, something. I mean, her family is obviously horribly tragic, horribly early, but also, well, they've said to me that there was a comfort in that she she died doing what she loved because she loved cycling so much. You know, it was it was everything in her life she loved it just for the social side just for the travel going to the shops you know she she loved and and for the really hard training she you know she'd ride her bike everywhere never learned to drive so that, that there's a sort of comfort and a almost a kind of I think Maxine Peake said it was almost the actor who did a, a play about Beryl's said it was almost poetic the way that she died but obviously just many decades before everybody wished it would have happened but um yeah this the, the health the health issue i think was a massive influence in, in what made her so competitive and so obsessed and since then there's been a lot of research done partly about british olympians but also about successful people in sort of wider society and they found that someone who's had a traumatic experience in childhood it's often very common that you find this or more common that you find this on on people who are really extreme what they called sort of super achievers, people that, that, that repeatedly win things or repeatedly do something. Um, they found that they've quite often had, had some sort of awful experience in their, in their childhood. It might be something completely different, like a parent separating or some type of abuse. Or uh, It's like you just never really know at the time how those incidents are going to form you later in life. There's an old fable, and I'll probably totally butcher this because I haven't read it in a while, but th the story goes that there's a, an old man in a secluded area and he has a young son there. And one day, this pack of wild horses wander onto his land and be, be settled down, domesticated. And the horses are very valuable in the culture he lives in. And all his neighbors are coming over to him. Oh my God, you're so lucky. It's like he's won the lotto. And he said... A good thing, bad thing, who knows? And a week later, his kid has an accident off the horse and breaks his leg. And the neighbors come over and say, oh my God, you're so unlucky. I can't believe it. And he said, well, good thing, bad thing, who knows? A week later, the local militia come through and they recruit every military age male into the army and his son can't go because he has a broken leg. And the neighbors come past and say, oh my God, you're so lucky. And he said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? So the moral being, we never know how incidents that on the surface it might look like it's a bad thing, but it later goes on to shape us. I'm wondering with Beryl, like her getting deprived of her education at a quite a formative stage, does that drive her down a career path of more manual labor, like working on farms, picking raspberries and rhubarb, which we know from all longitudinal studies now, that baseline activity is so important for our fitness levels. Yeah, that I think that's uh, it's really interesting what you say because I did speak to some sort of sports psychologists and, and general psychologists, psychiatrists as well about this, and they said it's not something you'd recommend. Obviously, more it, it affects people more negatively than positively. A, a, a dreadful experience, quite obviously, but if you've got certain things around you, it can have this sort of catalyst effect. And obviously, Beryl had this supportive environment around her coming out of it so I think that was an important thing to add that it wasn't just that it was it was the combination of that with other factors I think that were important for her and as you say it meant that she 
she left school at 15 and, and went out to work in a factory. And she just, I, I don't know whether she would have, one of her good friends, someone called Margaret Allen, who was a multiple national time trial champion as well, said that Beryl would have been successful in any walk of life, in anything she would have tried to do, because she obviously had that huge discipline and dedication that you could apply to different sports or to business or whatever but she did love to be active so I, I do wonder whether once she's once she had the opportunity to work on a farm doing manual labor with other it's mostly obviously with men um, and the person that owned the farm was another very good cyclist and I think she her daughter would say to me she couldn't sit still she had to be active all the time she would even if they're around the house, she'd be tidying or cleaning the house or doing something. Or knit. the only time they could make Beryl sit still was when she was knitting. <laughs> so and she'd do that very fast as well, and she'd do that on all the car journeys to races or, or whatever she or train journey. She'd always be knitting. That's the only time she sat still was when she was knitting. So I think she did love to be outdoors. And then, as you say, she didn't know it at the time, but it was a really tough job that she had. It was um, it was a rhubarb farm. So it was all bending, digging, carrying, lifting, picking up. Really, I mean, someone who worked on the farm I spoke to for the book said it was like backbreaking work. You know, it was it was tough, tough, tough work. And she was as strong as the men. And she was like competitive about that as well, apparently. You know, they'd be competitive about who'd, who'd sort of pack the most rhubarb or pick the most rhubarb or let, you know, taken out the most... Uh, I'm not too expert on all the detail of it, but, you know, the sacks of soil and whatever. And they're competitive about who had done the most and worked the hardest at that. And she didn't do any, like, conventional strength training. But obviously people have now looked at what she did. And it's interesting that a lot of the African runners that are so successful in Kenya and Ethiopia, a lot of them have a farming sort of background as well. And so you do wonder whether there's something in there, that that hard labour that she was doing day in, day out. I'm sure it was really significant to her cycling. It was it was sort of early strength training and her core. Um, her daughter said that she was just became very strong, you know, like opening jars or lifting furniture or any like, day to day tasks. She was like stronger than men were at, at doing stuff like that. And she wasn't particularly she's five foot five and a half, five foot six, eight and a half stone. So she wasn't a big woman, particularly, but she was strong. You know, she had that. If you look at the pictures of her, you can almost feel that strength in that there's no it's just pure through her core and I'm sure that that farm work was really significant to that she obviously did loads on the bike as well I had a chance to chat with the factor founder Rob Chitellis on the podcast it's worth going back to check out that episode I was super impressed with him personally factor are really pushing the boundaries of what's possible with aerodynamics in bike design at the moment but they're doing it with a social conscience, and that's what's so impressive for me. They're mindful of that environmental impact, paying employees a living wage, and resisting the urge to relocate production, like so many competitors, to lower-cost labour markets. I'm super proud to be riding Factor Bikes for the upcoming season. If you're considering buying a bike for yourself, put me a DM over on Instagram or over on Twitter, and I'm going to give you a personal introduction to the guys at Factor and make sure you get the very best possible experience. I think we can look back on someone's Palmares historically and in our heads to make ourselves feel better, we'll sometimes go, oh, it was a different era. They were probably soft wins. Like, you know, a, a cat to male or something now would be looking at this and going, oh, no, I, I probably smoke her. But to put into context how fast she was, like, so her Palmares is like insane, where she was 
best British all-rounder for 25 years in a row from 59 to 83. Five world titles in the individual pursuit, two on a row, 12-time national champion. But it's when you start looking at those national records, and particularly the 12-hour records that she held for two years, going faster than all the males. But that record, she went under four hours for a 100-mile effort. And under four hours for a 100-mile effort is averaging over 25 miles an hour, 40 kilometers an hour for four hours on the equipment they had back then, with the nutrition they had back then, with the level of aerodynamic knowledge they had back then, is insanely fast. It's faster than any club rider can go now. Yeah, I mean, that was... I think I think there's some... That, that thing of did she have the competition, I think in terms of the domestic women, it probably was wasn't always as, as strong as, as, as perhaps it has been at different times. But where you can really answer that question, as you say, is with the times that she set relative to the men at the time and also what she was doing in the world against riders from Belgium, Holland, as I say, France, particularly the East Germany and Soviet Union. They, they were state-funded and full-time, these riders um, in these countries, and were absolutely deadly serious about trying to be the best in the world. And they couldn't beat Beryl. You know, the, the, the Soviet Union coaches were so interested that I'm not quite clear if they made a dedicated trip to Yorkshire to see what she did. But, but they turned up one day at her farm in, uh, in Morley to see, have a look around what like she spies. did. Because they wondered how, how, you know, there was this, how does she keep beating our riders? So um, that she was, she was outstanding on a world level. And they weren't even in events that were really her best events because the three-kilometre pursuit, and as you mentioned earlier, the road race was only just over an hour. But obviously, if it had been longer, because Beryl was better as the distance went on, she would have won many more world championships and had there been a time trial in the world championships she would have been invincible from the late 50s to the early 80s so the event she did have didn't really play to her strengths in the world world championships but as you say the thing the thing that really marks her out is those times because when she did 355 for four hours in 1968 that would have won the majority of men's 100 championships over the next decade um, it was only a few years earlier that the first man had, and I think at the time only two men had ever gone under four hours. And um, it would actually, even up until, if you look at the winning times of the hundred women's 100 mile in the last few years, it's kind of some years they're faster than that, some years they're not. I mean, that, that time would still win national championships some years. Well, now. if you take people off TT bikes and you put them onto road bikes, even men, there's very few men that could ride that time on a road bike still that are yeah. pro. And the 12 hour, as you say, beat the men and was the women's, remained the women's record for 50 years, which is just insane. When you think that she, when you think the aerodynamic revolution was kind of late 80s, early 90s, it survived till 2017, her um, 12 hour record. But we did, we did this wind tunnel testing of her, we got hold of her. I was about to say, this is one of the nerdiest things I've ever heard. (laughs) I suppose it's a testament to how deep you went on this book and why the book is so highly acclaimed. Yeah, well, I wanted to, because I kind of knew from what we've discussed, you see her being so close to the men of the time, sometimes often beating them. And the fact that her records have only been beaten by women relatively recently, despite all the differences we, we know about in technology. So I thought if we could somehow model her her rides from the 60s and 70s, all her records were set, and what, what they would equate to on a modern time trial setup, I guessed it would still be pretty jaw-dropping. So we got hold of Beryl. We actually managed to get hold of Beryl's old bike, one of her, it was a rally TI that she used in the 80s. 
that somebody still, a guy called Dave Marsh, a collector of bikes, he, he, he still lovingly preserves. And it, t- it took a bit of persuasion for him to let me borrow it for the day. And we took it down to a wind tunnel in Silverstone. And um, a guy called Xavier Disley, who does, does testing of aerodynamics um, for pro teams or amateur riders who want to learn something or try something out. So he, he actually, we actually used Beryl's original bike and then we modelled it against a modern time trial bike of today. And we, we had a rider called Jessica Rhodes-Jones, who was sort of Beryl for the day. She, she kindly even wore Beryl's old Morley kit and a wig. Because uh, <laughs> Xavier said, well, the, he said clothing and, you know, the helmet is a big, big factor now. So so we got a wig and shaved it down to make it look like Beryl. And it, it was the photographs are pretty... Um, pretty good if I say so myself but anyway we did so, so he was able to 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 look at the aerodynamics of the road bike the steel road bike that she she rode and then against a modern carbon time trial bike and then work out the differences in aerodynamic drag it's this CDA reading that, that, that riders are apparently obsessed by now in time trials to, to when they're testing out their their kit and um, yeah, he, he came to the Beryl's times at 25 mile record, 50 record, 100 mile record and 12 hour record would still would still surpass the what are the competition records today. So can you remember what those sort of times were? Yeah, I've got the book with me, actually. Um, let me if you give me two seconds. What was interesting was that, I mean, the amazing thing about Beryl was her spread of distances because she was world record holder in the, she was the first woman to go under four minutes in the three kilometre pursuit, which obviously back then they were riding on open air tracks, big wide concrete tracks on steel bikes. So it was quite a bit slower than now, but her range was right the way from four minutes all the way up to 12 hours. She set records. So uh, even when you're looking for that, just to contextualize it for listeners, the wind tunnel, it's going to correct for aerodynamics. It's going to correct for, you know, as you said, the garments and stuff. What it's not going to correct for is lifestyle. We're living an entirely different lifestyle now. I get the pleasure to chat to a world tour cyclist most weeks on the podcast, and they're closer to robots than they are humans from the level of care to every aspect from looking and monitoring blood parameters, from using ketones to optimize their fueling strategies, to sports psychology, to inside their heads, to massage, to recovery, ice baths, compression, like you name it, they're Formula One cars, like (laughs) everything is just so optimized and Beryl had none of those luxuries. So even when you read out these times, they're correcting for aerodynamics, which I would argue is maybe 10% of the puzzle, but none of the rest of the sports science. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the incredible thing. We were literally, as Xavier said, we are literally just picking up Beryl and plonking her on a different bike and in different clothes. We're doing nothing else. We're not, we're not allowing, as you say, we, how, how can we allow for sort of training or diet and all the rest of it? But she was obviously doing loads of really good things the right things so but you know, the, these comparisons as you say are literally that and it's and in other sports where the technology is less like athletics or swimming the times are absolutely out of this worldly quicker now even without the technology so it just shows how amazing it was so the current so Beryl's 25 mile record was 53 minutes 21 Whoa. the current record that's on obviously all hers were on a road bike the current record is 49.28, Hayley Simmons. Um, Beryl, Beryl came in at 47.52, in, if we allowed for the upgrade in aerodynamics. 
50 miles Beryl's record was one hour 51.30. The current competition record is one hour 42.20, which is Hayley Simmons again. Beryl is one hour 41.06, so she's a minute. So the 50 and 25, um, she's just over between one and two minutes ahead. But the really interesting ones are the 112 hour, because that was where she was really at her best. And as you mentioned, she did three hours 55.05 for 100 in 1968. That's rounded down to three hours 33 now, which um, at the time we did the, the wind tunnel test, it was eight minutes, 47 seconds faster than Alice Lethbridge's record. Alice's record actually went last year, but it didn't beat, I won't complicate it too much. The new record beat Alice's, but didn't beat the kind of improved Beryl figure, if that makes sense. So the new records got a little closer to to where Beryl was. And then the 12 hour one, which was sort of Beryl's most famous record because it beat the men. It was 277.25 miles in 1967. Alice Lethbridge holds the current record, which is 290 miles. And they have Beryl on the modern technology at 305.23 miles, <laughs> which actually would put her in the top 15 still of the men's all-time list. Ah, it's so, uh, so it shows, and Xavier actually said, I don't think there's another athlete in any sport that I can think of that you could do this and it would, uh, and they would, you, you could make that comparison and they would stay that outstanding so many years later. So we all love that. Uh, we, we love that kind of, is it nature versus nurture? But Beryl definitely didn't help us answer that question because her daughter Denise came along, obviously with a lot of Beryl's genetics there, but also having the luxury of growing up surrounded by cycling. But the rivalry and friendship that developed between them two is absolutely brilliant. But there's one story that I just thought is unbelievable. It's Beryl refusing to shake the hand of her daughter, <laughs> Denise, on the national champs podium because she didn't feel like Denise done her fair share of the work in the break. <laughs> I feel like this could be me and my mom if my mom was a racer. <laughs> I know it's an incredible story she'd won that event 12 times already the national road race (laughs) and she was about to turn 40 she was 39 and Denise she had Denise caught when she was only 18 so Denise was 20 at the time just just turned 20 from memory and um yeah I mean Beryl they'd raced actually in a 50 mile time trial the week before and Beryl had beaten her by about 12 minutes because obviously in that type of event Beryl was invincible basically but in the in a road race she was very bad tactically i mean she would admit this she was she just went to the front and rode hard and most of the time she was so much better that she could just ride away but obviously if people could stay with her and people's tactics you know that people understood and took took turns to cover her as you know as as we know about modern road racing she didn't understand that and didn't really have a, any counter to that. And she didn't really have a change of pace particularly. So unless there was a good hill or it was a really long race, she was vulnerable in the road race. And uh, this was a problem, obviously, at a world level earlier when she was the best time trialist and pursuiter, but, you know, only won two road race titles. Still, still not bad, but she got away twice and, and won, obviously won them on her own by quite a few minutes. This, this was happening domestically as well, that the, the women were starting to stay with her till the finish. And then obviously they could beat her in the sprint. She wasn't a very fast finisher. And Denise, Denise, her daughter, was a much quicker sprinter than her. So she managed to hang on with another woman called Carol Barton and beat her in the sprint. And, um, you know, no doubt Beryl probably had been on the front for most of the race. But 
you know, I think Denise had still done. Denise still, I asked her about it, and she said, "No, I did, I did my bit in the in the sort of group we were in." You know, but she she was sort of like, "Well, what did she expect me to do? Sort of ride on the front for the last five miles and let her win?" <laughs> so uh, you know, you would think, given that there was mother and daughter in a three person break, that they would try and work over the other person, <laughs> but there was no thought of that. It's just, I'd say it was a frosty dinner that evening between the two of them. Well, she didn't come home that evening, Beryl. She was so upset. <laughs> she she went and had she had dinner with someone called Ron Kitchen, who was the the guy who organised a lot of Yorkshire cycling events. And uh, she went, I think she went and stayed at her mother's for a time. And then quite soon after that, Beryl actually left. Uh, Denise actually left the family house. So you know, it, it wasn't just that. I think it was a build up of things because on the morning, although Beryl Beryl says it was to do with. Um, how Denise had, had rode in the break partly. She also said she wasn't doing her, her, her bit around the house as well. She felt she <laughs> so poor, poor old Denise was getting all this. But she actually on the morning of the race, um, which this is another jaw-dropping anecdote, they were packing up the car. They lived in Woodlesford and the race was in Harrogate, which is about 25 miles away. Just as they were getting in the car, Beryl said, no, you can cycle to the race. You can't, you can't come in the car. So it was real like psychological warfare against her daughter because she obviously knew that she was her one of her biggest threats that day. So Denise actually warmed up by cycling to the event. And her dad, the, you know, her dad, Beryl's husband, was sort of caught in the middle of this sort of rivalry. Oh, what a horrible place to be. No, I can't. I mean, to be fair, Denise can smile about some of it now. She obviously... I think she despairs a little bit of some of those aspects of her mother's character as well, but she's hugely like proud of her. But but I think she understands, or she I know she does, that it's kind of that mentality is a sort of perhaps is an explanation for why her mother was so exceptionally good for so long as well. So it's not I suppose it's not always the kind of fairy tale perfect person. I think people who are that good are often, maybe not always, but are often very selfish and obsessed and it's all about them and ferociously competitive. And she really, she really was that, you know, there was no pretending or hiding or sort of putting on a facade. That's she, she was as determined to be a daughter as anybody else really. And I, I think her daughter accepts that now, you know, they rode, they rode together on a tandem in later life and set tandem records. And, and it was it, uh, was it 1972, the two of them were chosen to represent Great Britain and the worlds? Like, has yeah. that ever happened before? A son and father or mother and daughter in the same worlds together? If someone knows better than me, then I'm happy to be proved, said wrong. I tried to, I certainly looked into this and I couldn't find any comparison in, in any sport, let alone in cycling, because it is just about partly because obviously Beryl was 18 when she had Denise. It made the, the, the age gap just feasible. But even then, it's, you know, Beryl was getting on for 40 and Denise was late teens. So he, even where she had her quite young and it only was just possible. So, I, yeah, I certainly couldn't find any other comparison of that. So it's an amazing, really, thing that, that they could both ride in these world championships together. And to finish up, I'm wondering why the gap was so big between her and her competitors. Did you manage to glean any insights? Obviously, we're thronged with data now from Whoop to Training Peaks to Today's Plan and Strava and all these. goes without saying, they didn't have the benefit of that tech then. Was it hard to get an insight into the type of training she was doing or can you shine a light and illuminate that a little bit for us? She was definitely, I think she she always just thought it was because she worked harder than anybody else. And I think all of the British riders would be the first to accept that. She would, 
she was incredibly dedicated. She would cycle everywhere. If she did a 50 mile time trial in London, just to give an example, she would cycle home up the A1 170 miles afterwards. That was her kind of mindset. She would cycle everywhere she went. And she would do these rides as well as um, as well as really long rides through the dales. She would do these um, rides up dual carriageway or it was the, the road to Doncaster or the road to York from Leeds. And she'd ride in and out of the wagons and lorries of an evening for a couple of hours. And it was like motor pace. Yeah, going like 40 miles an hour behind them. And then apparently when they chugged up the hills, she'd she'd come out of the saddle and go round them. And then like, um, so she'd do this really ferocious sort of interval type training, perhaps without even knowing it, up and down these um, sort of, I, I don't know if they were dual carriageways at the time, maybe single, but busy single carriageway roads. So she and, and then add in all that farm work. She never drank anything, always eat alcohol wise, always ate really well. So I think she was just way ahead of the others in terms of her dedication and everything she was doing. She was, I mean, there were riders, there was a rider, a Belgian rider called Yvonne Renders, who was pretty close to her internationally, who was better road racer, a bit like Denise, but at a higher level, she was a, had a good sprint. So she would tend to be. You know, if she could stay with Beryl, she would be better than her in the finish. Um, and there was a, a couple of Russians, one in particular that was a really good pursuiter as well. So, but overall, Beryl still had the better of all the riders internationally. But there were a couple that were sort of close to her internationally. But nobody, obviously, domestically was even close until she was well into her 40s. And, um, you know, Mandy Jones, who was world road champion in 82, she kind of was started to be the first person to start beating her in, in domestic time trials. But Beryl was kind of 46 or seven by then. And they were kind of 50-50 for a few years in um, domestic time trials, her and Mandy Jones. So, uh, Jeremy, it's a, it's a fascinating story. The book is brilliant. I've picked up a half dozen copies for friends. I still have a couple of copies lying around the house. If anyone's quick and wants to get over, you're more than welcome to one. The book is Beryl in Search of Britain's Greatest Athletes. Jeremy, congratulations to the book. It's rightly getting accolades from around the cycling community. So congratulations and thanks for joining me on the Roadman Podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.